Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. All right, I think we are, uh, we are ready to begin after our costume change. Uh, as you can see, tonight, today's event is co-hosted uh, by the LSE and Standard Chartered, whose group chairman joins me on stage. Dr. Jose Vinales is, uh, has been with Standard Chartered since late 2016, and he's also co-chair of the UN Global Investors for Sustainable Development. This follows on from a glittering career uh, that took him from the faculty at Stanford to 25 years at the Bank of Spain, where he rose to be deputy governor, to the IMF, where the three of us worked on lots of crises together. <laughs> um, most importantly, Jose uh, received his master's from the London School of Economics, and he is an alumni of the school. <laughs> Which is undoubtedly responsible for his swift progression to the top <laughs> of global economics and finance. And so I'm delighted to welcome Jose back to the LSE. The three of us are gonna have a conversation for roughly 45 minutes, and then we'll open things up to the audience for questions, both those of you in the theater and those of you participating online. Please do identify yourselves when you ask your question, and we're particularly keen to hear from students uh, and staff. Uh, if you're following this conversation on Twitter, the hashtag for today is hashtag LSCSC, uh, and we will turn this event into a podcast afterwards. So now we're done with the housekeeping. I'll turn it over to Jose. Well, thank you very much, uh, dear Minouche, dear Christine, you've been dear managing director, dear president, dear everything. <laughs> so it's really wonderful to be here and, and back at the LSE which is such a formidable place that for more than 125 years has been uh, you know, sending to the world leaders and great ideas that have made it a better place. And today, this is quite a unique event also. And I can tell you that when I was listening to Minouche uh, oration describing uh, you, know, you, Christine Lagarde, not just as a professional uh, superhero, but also as a person, I was moved as well as when you spoke about Minouche. Um, and I was told to introduce you, but you've been already introduced. So, <laughs> so is there any, any, any value added for a reintroduction? Well, as long as it's very short and try to be complimentary. So I'm going to give you also my personal angle about um, Christine Lagarde from the time that we spent uh, together at the IMF, which I will never forget. No, I'll never forget the short nights. I'll never forget the difficult conversation. But most of all, the excitement of doing something at that crucial time for the world that hopefully all of us acting as a team made a positive difference to the world and I'm convinced of that under your leadership. So a few things. Um, a global rock star in the world of economics and finance and central banking now, but a very human person. Humanity, I think, when you were talking about all the attributes before and you include the compassion, I think I've always had you as a role model for humanity and for humility because Christine Lagarde is someone who listens who lets you speak, who processes what you say, and then decides, but he's open to others' ideas. He's not in possession of the truth, but he can discover good and bad advice when she gets it, but she wants to listen to ideas. So humanity and humility, and that's something that makes her such an inspiring leader with such tremendous followership. Within the fund and outside the fund, because I have travel with her to different parts of the world. And it doesn't matter whether it's in India or is it in Chile or it's in Tumbuktu. Whenever she appears, there are many people there who want to listen to her and who get something special out of that communication. Courage, you mentioned that in your speech. I have been a direct witness of decisions which took tremendous courage 
because they were very hard, but also they entailed even important personal costs on the person who was making that decision, those decisions. And those decisions guided by the moral compass that you also alluded to, to me, that was a tremendous example that I have never seen so clearly in my professional life until that time. So I will never forget that. Another thing that it's key for a leader is not just to lead the troops, but to help grow leaders around them. And I think that you have been a magnificent grower of leaders around you, voila. <laughs> and you always stood back, stood by your people. And I have experienced that personally in very difficult decisions, in very difficult, very difficult personal times. When Christine Lagarde, the easy way out would have been to say, okay, let's forget about it. No, no. She took the courage to do things which were critical. And I felt like no one, uh, you know, like I had never felt before, really, uh, you know, supported by my boss. And the last thing is that Christine Lagarde is really a change agent. And you mentioned some of the things she did at the IMF. I mean, the IMF, if there is a conservative institution in the world, <laughs> is the IMF. Well, the European Central Bank is another one, but you know, <laughs> I will not bring that into the conversation because that's changing also. And um, at the IMF, uh, you know, the school of the IMF is sort of narrow macro thinking and, and that's it. And when Christine Lagarde came in, things were broadened. You've already mentioned some of them. <coughs> Inclusion, income, wealth inequality, sustainability, dimensions, which are critical in order to make growth and financial stability sort of sustained. Those dimensions were added, not without small opposition, but again, persistent is important. So fortune uh, is the um, reward, rewards those who are courageous, but also those who persevere. And you persevere in changing the face and the DNA of an institution which was able to face the new world that we have now. So again, that's a tremendous legacy that you left, not just for the institution, but also for the world. And that's why you're such a role model and why all these people are here <laughs> and why you know some of us are different after having met you compared to what we were before we met you. So for that, thanks a lot. Thanks a ton. It is really a privilege to be sharing this stage with you and with my dear friend, Minouche, who also is still a fantastic role model. Now, having said that, I have been given a little role in this conversation. The main thing you have to do is to listen to Christine Lagarde in the Q&A. And I was given the privilege of asking a question, maybe trying to answer a question. We'll see if I can answer or not. And then coming back with a question at the end. And Minush is going to, show, to run the show. But my question is about central bank. And, you know, central banks are critical for the world and they have been critical for, for a long time when they do the right thing and when they make mistakes. And central banks were um, really very important in the 80s and the 90s when they reformed themselves and that those reforms in terms of central bank uh, independence and a clear mandate uh, allowed them to play a very important role in bringing inflation down, keeping them down. And that helped um, achieve what was called like the great moderation, a, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, and part of the 2000s, we had low growth, high growth and low inflation in the world. And then came the crisis times and central banks again responded very well during the great financial crisis, the sovereign debt crisis in Europe, during the COVID crisis, again, central banks acted forcefully to prevent deflation and depression. And again, the world is very thankful for that, while at the same time maintaining financial stability. And now the fighting inflation in the new circumstances. And I'm not going to ask you about the ECB's monetary policy, which is what some people may want to hear, because <laughs> that's not what I'm here for. But I'm here to ask you a question about 
you know, things having to do with sustainability, which is going to be an important part of this conversation. And the question is, yes, central banks have different mandates, but what, 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 what is your thinking? And could you update us when you're thinking of how can central banks best contribute to make this a better, more livable and sustainable planet? Thank you so much, uh, Jose. Thank you for the, uh, the additional um, comments and the additional blushing that hopefully you can't suspect because I've got all this powder on my face. <laughs> but inside, it is, it is how I feel. And I'm not sure that I deserve all of that. To your question, which is really um, what, what we should focus, what matters, and, and where um, I, I hope most of you are interested. I think we have to really, in spite of everything that we are concerned about, in spite of the uncertainty, in spite of the crisis that we're dealing with, in spite of what I have as a primary mandate, which has to do with price stability, in spite of all that, we have to be mindful, focused, concerned about the impact of climate change and the impact of uh, humans' behavior on biodiversity and the protection of the environment. And that was well explained by other central bankers than me. It is nicely uh, explained in, in literature, and I'm sure that many of you know about that. And it is obvious that the first who have to be concerned about that and the first who have to act in that respect are the governments. There is no doubt in my mind that that's where the action lies. And by that, I mean the executive and the legislative branch, and indeed, as a result of the legislative determination, the judicial. So what has got a central banker got to do with it? And why should it be concerned? Well, it should be concerned because the crisis that we have in front of us should be a concern for all of us in whichever capacity we act and whatever authority we have, and whether we are policy making decision makers or whether we are in the private sector, because it is a crisis that is looming and of which the horizon come closer to us as we move. I don't need to go through the conclusions of what I call the GIEC, which I think is called the ICCC, uh, which have been repeatedly and most recently published about the catastrophe towards which we are moving. So, Having said that it is the responsibility of government at large, I contend that central bankers also have to be concerned and they also have to do their bit. And they have to be concerned because it clearly, the consequences of climate change and the failure of humanity to protect biodiversity will impact, for instance, inflation. And obviously inflation, you will not dispute that, Jose, is right and center of the competence, and at least it is the yardstick by which we measure our efficacy. Second, it clearly impacts also central banks because it does affect their balance sheet. And it does affect also the supervision that it is responsible for with the banking system around them. So both on accounts of inflation and the macroeconomic impact that it produces, on account of good risk management and on account of proper supervision, we have to be concerned about climate change. Now, it's very funny because for me, advocating this and with the great support of some of my team members now, uh, reminds me of my IMF days. Because and you would remember and a couple of others would remember as well, when <coughs> I initially uh, tried to convince our executive directors that, of course, climate change was macro-critical. That was a hard battle to win. But eventually, we managed. And I think that wir schaffen das, as uh, the Germans would say, we will also manage that, and we will also convince appropriately those who have to be convinced. And so what, what do we actually do as a result of that? I think the first... Um, sort of element of uh, action was that we devised a strategy uh, at the ECB, which turned every stone and determined to focus on the 2% uh, 
medium-term inflation target without fussing about whether it's close to or below. But and that was very important, as well as many other things. But we also decided that climate change was relevant for monetary policy. We devised an action plan which is associated with deliverables and with timeline by which we have to deliver. And I'm really proud to report here at the LSCN in response to your question that we are on our action plan on time. I was going to say on budget. This is <laughs> always something that I struggle with because you need smart economists and you need new skills. If you want to include climate change impact into your models, for instance, you need to have great resources and they are scarce at the moment. So you need to pay them properly. Otherwise, they don't join you. We know that. So that's you know, one, of the, uh, one of the achievements uh, that was published last July and which is available to all of you interested in what the central bank will do about climate change and where it will impact its, its action. We are also uh, doing a lot of stress testing. So we are stress testing ourselves. We are stress testing the banks with which we operate. And we try to find out whether or not they do take into account climate change properly and whether their own balance sheets are reflecting adequately the value that is in there. The same applies to us. Now, there are a few, I will mention a couple of steps which I regard as critical going forward and which we have not yet completed and which will take a bit of time. Some of you may have heard on the other side of the channel uh, that taxonomy had been approved. It's approved, but it's a bit disputed here and there. We're not completely at the end of that game. What is more important is the work that is being done around what should be disclosed in addition to the regular financial statements. So in other words, the non-financial disclosure and the directive, the European directive that goes with it. So that work is underway. It has to be completed. It has to be forcefully completed and delivered so that we can also get on with the work that we have to do. If it goes too slowly, we'll have to do the work ourselves. At the moment, there is a bit of delay, but we hope it's not going to be more than what is currently considered. It is extremely important because if there are yardsticks, proper benchmarks, measurements by which the corporate world is able to say, this is what I am doing. This is how much I impact the environment. This is how much the environment is impacting me. So it's, for those in the know, it's scope one, scope two, scope three. Uh, if they can do that, then it's not that they are required to do something else, but at least they are transparent about what it is that they're doing affecting or suffering from the environment. And if they do that, then the public can decide to invest or not to invest. And we can decide to take collaterals with or without a haircut or assessing a proper value to those disclosures. We can decide to buy assets if we are in asset purchases mode, which is not the case anymore for those who have missed out a little bit. <laughs> So this is something that really needs to happen fast. And it has to be global. Because we can do efforts in parts of the world, but if it is not happening everywhere, and if we're not playing by the same standards, it's going to create havoc and headache for the corporate world. If some of you have to disclose by certain standards in the United States, because the SEC is coming out with its own disclosure requirements. And you have to disclose different uh, information and documents by the European standards. And if on the top of it, you have some additional elements uh, that are or not respected in Japan or in China, this is not going to be very operational. So a very strong collective global um, work needs to be completed so that we can actually all have our open eyes on what impact we are producing. And hopefully it will be a wake up call for those who just couldn't care less about what they produce on the environment. Thank you. Great. Jose, did you want to add anything from the perspective of the financial sector? No, okay. So, <laughs> all right, very good. So, <laughs> not, not on central banking, but yes, yes, agree how critical it is to, you know, uh, how you started to, to, to maintain sort of uh, inflation within uh, the right guardrails, because otherwise it can create a lot of havoc. And uh, again, you know, central banks are not uh, home alone. You have the governments and that's how you started. 
and I think what you need is 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 well uh, thought of uh, joint action, each respecting their own different mandates, in order to 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 achieve the macro and financial stability, which uh, which is so important for the world. Let me turn to the question about the outlook, what it means for the global economy, and what it means for climate action. So. You know, it feels like we say this every 15 years, but once again, everything is different. The world has changed fundamentally and the outlook has changed as a result of the, the war in Ukraine. And of course, we're still dealing with the aftermath of the pandemic and what it's done to global supply chains. How do you see the implications for the likelihood of the outlook, but also what it means for action on climate change? Uh, you know, some of the climate goals align with some of the national security interests that are prevalent at the moment, but some don't, some diverge. Do you see any room for hope, both for the outlook and for climate action in the current context? Yes. I'll start with the, um, thank you, Minush, but I'll, I'll start with, you know, what we all regard as as terrible, uh, unjustifiable, and, and, and uh, a complete nightmare, and I'm talking here about the war in Ukraine and the consequences of the war in Ukraine uh, decided by the Russians um, on, on our economic thinking and our uh, current situation. And I believe that what is happening now and the situation of um, dependence and vulnerability that we find ourselves in, particularly on the ener energy front, but not only, uh, because we have to, to think about food scarcity and the fact that so many uh, countries are going to run short of cereals in, 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 in the not-too-distant future. I believe that this is going to play a key accelerating um, role. By that, I mean um, in Europe, and that's where I'm, I'm focusing my effort and my thinking at the moment. In Europe, I don't think that we would have had so much determination, energy, and hopefully budget on the Green Deal, on Fit for 55, uh, on the, the, the decision to ban and boycott certain sources of uh, fossil energy if it hadn't been for this terrible development uh, east of Europe in Ukraine. Because that situation demonstrated for us that we were dangerously dependent on um, hostile suppliers. And if you look at the volume of energy that is coming out of Russia, whether you're talking about oil or whether you're talking about gas, and obviously with different uh, fragmentation in whether you're talking Bulgaria, uh, Italy, um, Germany, or France, because they have alternative sources of supply, particularly for electricity, we are talking about a situation that should have been addressed a long time ago, but now is addressed in a very accelerated way. Um, you know, the, the number of gas supply contracts that Italy has signed in the last couple of weeks, maybe a bit more than a couple of weeks, but it's just astonishing and would not have happened had it not been the case. So I think it will play a key accelerating role. Now, what impact will it have on growth? What impact will it have on inflation, which are some of the, the and, and what impact will it have on employment? Employment is not in my mandate, but obviously there is, there is a, a clear uh, interrelationship between these all, all these. Moving to a greener economy and moving towards diversification of supply rather than the dependence that we are in will require massive investment. I think the European Commission uh, estimated that we need 520 billion euros per year in order to respond to the challenges of meeting the Paris Agreement com mm -hmm. compliance. So massive investment will be required and investment we need at the moment. There is not enough public investment, there is not enough private investment. So I think what policymakers have to ask themselves is, how do we facilitate, how do we help, how do we encourage, how do we bring together public and private investment of the magnitude that we are talking about? And I think the exercise of disclosure and transparency participates in the right channeling of investment towards those areas where it's badly needed. The impact on inflation of uh, the, the, the movement towards a much greener uh, energy is debated debatable. And clearly, 
will be different whether you're looking at the very short term where it's likely to have upward uh, pressure on price level uh, from the longer term where it's more likely to have downward impact on price levels. And, and we need to be cognizant of that. We need to face that reality and we need to embrace it and make the otherwise right policy decisions in order to, to, to tame uh, that if and when it comes. In terms of employment, and, and the LSE is, is focused right where we should all be, which is better education, better training, focus on what value can be delivered by uh, those who are in training. We will need new jobs. We will need new skill sets at all levels uh, in, in, the, in the economy. And uh, that effort will have to be deployed by uh, fantastic schools like yours, but also throughout the educational and the training system, including by having those companies that are transforming themselves towards the green industry that will also participate in the financing of these new skill sets. So I was a bit too long on that one. Not at all. Uh, you mentioned the impact on developing countries. Yeah. And one of the problems, of course, inherently in dealing with climate change are all the asymmetries and inequalities in terms of who created the problem, who emitted, who will emit in the future, and the capacity, the very different capacities of rich and poor countries to finance the investment that you've mentioned, and who suffers the consequences of not making those investments. How can we overcome those distributional problems and help support emerging markets in mitigation and adaptation in order to achieve net zero? I was going to give you a number because we have often communicated in numbers and I would say $100 billion mm. because that was the commitment that was made uh, way back at the time of the Paris Agreement, if not before actually. Um, and, and many of you uh, would remember the laborious exercise that the OECD produced in order to identify whether or not countries had actually harnessed $100 billion <coughs> in order to help those countries that have less means transfer to a greener economy and avoid some of the pitfalls through which we went. And unfortunately, that $100 billion fund on an annual basis has not yet been delivered upon. So I think there is a clear responsibility on the part of those countries that have more means, that have contributed much more uh, to the climate change uh, negative consequences to actually help the other ones who have contributed less. Uh, that, that is, in my view, the, the obvious uh, response. But it doesn't mean to say that not everyone, including the developing countries, also participate in the effort and also decide to adopt the right path in the right direction. But they can't do it on their own. They have to have support. Jose, Standard Chartered is the bank for emerging markets, uh, and you're very aware of their financing needs for the transition. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that um, uh, the point of, 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 the, um, of the financing needed is, is extremely important. And in fact, um, the private sector and the private financial sector can play an extremely important role in working collaboratively with the public sector in helping to bridge the gap, the estimates that I'm aware of, some that we have uh, we have published ourselves is something like um, uh, you know 95 trillion dollars that would be needed for emerging markets in order to achieve net zero, um, and, and and that is something that must be achieved in a way which is consistent with a just transition, because these are economies and societies which have important economic and social development needs. And, and again, one, one needs to make sure that that net zero path is consistent with those um, you know, uh, economic and social goals. Um, but the private sector can do, can do a lot. And if, you know, as, as, as you said before, Christine, if the, you know, if, the develop, if the emerging markets were to try to finance these themselves, they would have to make tremendously difficult choices uh, in countries which are far away from meeting the sustainable development goals, which goes beyond climate change, and which have very limited budgets, they, they would have very, very difficult choices that probably will make them greener but poorer, right? So you really need the international uh, investment to come in 
and help in this in this situation. And there is money available, you know, in Glasgow, Mark Carney, sort of, uh, you know, global, uh, you know, net zero financial alliance had, you know, um, institutions, including ourselves, but many others committing uh, $130 trillion of, of, of assets to help the cause of fighting climate change. So uh, there, is, there is available private capital, but the problem is that the private capital is not going to emerging markets. And there are reasons for that that need to be uh, uh, understood and then uh, things that need to be put in place for, for capital to flow. And of course, one important reason is that uh, you know, emerging markets are risky. And when you make decisions, you have to take into account that. So there are lots of things that emerging markets can and should do in order to make uh, their sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, the investments happening in the markets uh, less risky, things like the rule of law, institutional, uh, you know, strength, uh, good governance, all of those predictability, all of those things are extremely important. But, um, but um, at the same time, there are other things that can be done and investing in sustainable or in climate change related projects also has additional risks that need to be considered. So I think that here is where the alliance between the private sector and the public sector uh, can play a big role. And blended finance, which is a concept that is, which is uh, widely used in the world of finance and development of finance, but maybe to those of you who are not so familiar, familiar with it, maybe may a little bit more uh, you know, uh, alien, is basically bringing together the private sector, multilateral development banks, through a combination of, of or tools, including guarantees, to make sure that sustainable projects and projects that finance uh, climate, uh, that fight against climate change, have a reasonable risk-adjusted rate of return by the risking those projects. And then this is something which has been doing, been done, and we do that a lot in our footprint through Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. But what one needs is a big scale. Pace and scale are critical here. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you need to go from the current approach, which is sort of piecemeal and retail, to a more wholesale approach where you develop platforms which allow a replicable, systematic, and large-scale co-financing involving both multilateral development banks and the private sector so that you bring to the world the resources which are needed so that these countries, emerging markets, can be no poorer, but greener, you know, better off, and therefore move in the direction of just transition at the pace we all need it. Because otherwise, those are the countries most exposed to the consequences of climate change and actually where the money is most needed. Yeah. Jose, your point about pace and scale uh, is a nice segue to my next question, which is around the multilateral system and how it can support this. So when we had our meetings of the IMF and the World Bank at the annual meetings, all the banners and posters said, global challenges need global solutions. That was always the motto. And yet the multilateral system is under huge stress with an increasingly polarized and fragmented world and global solutions have been very hard to find. And we saw that, especially during the pandemic. So at the LSE, we're currently hosting a commission on uh, global economic governance. And uh, one of the topics that we're looking at is reform of the international financial mm -hmm. institutions, and particularly how they can do a better job of supporting the climate change issue. So Christine, are there reforms that you would like to see of the international financial system so that the system can do a better job of tackling climate change? Yeah. First of all, I think it's wonderful that the LSE is hosting this commission and that you have that as a, as a, on your to-do list. Having been head of an interna international institution myself, I would say that, first of all, institutions have to do what they expected to do. So when an institution like the World Bank, for instance, or some of the uh, multilateral development bank that are regional, uh, have a mission, they should deliver on that mission. And I think that climate change is obviously part of, of that exercise. So first of all, you have to do what you have to do. If it's your mission, you deliver on your mission. You don't you know, put aside part of the job because it's too hard or because you, the, the funding is too difficult to um, harness. No, you, you have to do that, first point. Second point, I think that um, accountability has to play a key role. Uh, and by that, I mean, it has to be institutions that represent 
their constituency fairly, where the uh, voting system is sufficiently weighted so that yeah. it actually works. And um, I have a, a thought at this very moment uh, for our friend Ngozi, who is head of the WTO and who is probably going to be struggling with achieving some progress, which I've no doubt that she will, but she has institutional barriers to overcome, which have to do with this uh, non-weighted voting, uh, which, which operates as a break on many of the, the achievements that otherwise could, could, be, could be completed. Mm -hmm. So accountability is one, proper representation, a weighted system uh, of voting. And it is not to denigrate you know, that small countries matter. It's just to recognize that uh, when you have to commit more, when you have to finance more, you obviously have to engage uh, more and, and, and vote at the level of your engagement. I would also say that it's, it's a political determination. Um, I, I, I happen to uh, chair the um, International Advisory Council of the EIB, the European Investment Bank. And the EIB, uh, a few years ago, actually, it was, I think, the first multilateral, multilateral development bank, investment bank, rather, not development, but investment bank. I think it was the first one to decide that it would invest in green project predominantly, and it would gradually transition out of the non-green projects. And that has actually happened because the, uh, the shareholders supported it, because the management uh, took the marching orders seriously, and, and it is happening. So it, it's, a, it's a combination of all that. I would add cherry on the cake, and not probably the easiest one, that these international institutions have to cooperate. And if they are led to just compete with each other, to showcase which one is first past the post, or uh, which one is doing a better job, it's... it's not effective, and it's not going to be the best service of what should be collective public good. Very well, very well said. So let me now turn uh, to the final question from me, uh, which is, uh, you're one of the few people in the world who has huge experience in both fiscal and monetary policy making at both the national and international level. And in several countries over the last few years, structural and political factors have really constrained fiscal policy, sometimes dramatically limiting its scope to address issues, whether it's financial crises, public health crises, climate, and others. And monetary policy has, has repeatedly had to step into the breach. And of course, different central banks have different mandates, but it would be very interesting to get your take on this shift. Is this a good thing? Have central banks taken on too much? Should fiscal policy do more? Can it do more? And what are the political risks for both fiscal and monetary policy of these developments? Mm. That's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> um, how many times have I heard you, Jose, say uh, central banks cannot be the only game in town? You have said it, you have said it, I have said it. And that was... Uh, that was in the decade that, that followed um, the global financial crisis, where central banks had to um, take on a much heavier burden than they would otherwise have had uh, to, um, to take on if fiscal authorities had done their job. I think it has changed recently. And if I look at um, the what happened with the pandemic and how, again, focusing and narrowing the debate to, uh, to Europe. When I see how the Europeans got together from a fiscal point of view, at the national level, at the regional level, coming up with the next generation um, EU plan and funds, uh, decided to also create a few programs that were collectively funded for instance, uh, the SURE program, which was intended to supplement the unemployment benefits that were made available during the pandemic. So there were fiscal initiatives that were decided at the regional level that complemented the national level. While at the, so they managed to preserve as much as was possible the disposable income of families, households. Um, while at the same time, the central bankers, and certainly the uh, European Central Bank and all the national central banks of the Eurosystem, 
made sure that there was enough financing available at the right prices so that activities could continue, so that enterprises could invest, and so that we could just cross that bridge over the pandemic and make sure that we would come back uh, to the pre, uh, pre-COVID uh, levels in, in all respects. So I think in that situation, it was a break from the 10 years that we had before, where central banks were asked to really step out and, and, and do it all. Um, and that, that was a very welcome change where fiscal and monetary worked really hand in hand. Now, obviously now the situation has changed and, uh, and each institutions will have to deliver on its mission. Uh, clearly from a central bank standpoint, uh, we cannot be either uh, dominated by fiscal issues. We cannot, be, we cannot you know, surrender to fiscal dominance neither can we surrender to finance uh, dominance, and we have to deliver on our mandate, uh, which is, as many of you know, price stability measured by this medium, um, medium-term inflation outlook at uh, 2% target. While the same, by the same token, fiscal authorities are going to have to do their job as well. And uh, you know, when I look at the current situation where energy prices are going through the roof, it is a case in point that fiscal authorities and only fiscal authorities can actually make sure that the distributive impact of this hardship is addressed and where subsidies, grants, discounts, uh, incentives can actually be directed to those who are most vulnerable, Mm -hmm. to those who suffer the most. And that is not something that monetary policy can achieve. It is something that fiscal authorities can and should achieve. Okay, well, thank you very much. Lots of, um, lots of very important things have been said here today. Now it's my turn to ask a question to you and to you. So you're not going to escape here with, 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 with a question. And I'm coming back to, uh, you know, to the beginning and linking to, the, to some of the things you said in, in, in the oration for the uh, sort of honorary doctorate, which has to do with the role of uh, women uh, in leadership. And, and both of you are... Uh, formidable uh, women, uh, female leaders, and uh, you know there are many, uh, you know, you know m- many females in this in this in this room, and, and many men, and I uh, see men as as key allies of women, in 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 sort of partnering for a for for a better world, and the question is about is there anything in particular that you want to highlight regarding an attribute of, uh, of, of women's leadership, which could be particularly relevant, both regarding in the sphere of work, in the particular organizations where, they're, where, where you know, these, these uh, women leaders exert uh, their, their leadership, being in academia, being in finance, in economics, in the private sector, in the public sector, and also um, something which is more broader, which is in terms of the impact that you can make when you have institutional positions as an educator or as a central banker, for example, or a global, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, multilateral organization leader uh, beyond that. Maybe we can, we can start with Belush now. Okay. I mean, I think, I think it's first, I'm going to focus on economics and finance because I think there is a huge problem there. We have to acknowledge that women are terribly underrepresented in economics and finance and much less well represented than in fields which have traditionally been male dominated like law or medicine or engineering, where the numbers of women are far greater. Why? First, I think partly it's the way the subject is taught. It's often very arid, abstract, uh, and the culture- As we demonstrated- Exactly, exactly. Well, we try to make it a bit better, but some of it just is. And also the culture around the disciplines is often very competitive, sometimes very aggressive, and not attractive to many young women deciding whether or not to study economics or finance. That's a problem. The second problem, I think, is that the nature of the jobs, particularly in finance, are what Claudia Golden calls greedy jobs. Mm. They're jobs where you have to be at the beck and call of clients, where you have unpredictable hours. And for women who have caring responsibilities, it's very hard to do greedy jobs. And uh, and that's an issue. But I would say things are changing. Uh, Economics is becoming empirical again with the revolution in data sciences. And so it's becoming more interesting. I think many more women are interested in the fact that economics is increasingly focused on real world problems. 
And the discipline knows that it needs to attract more women. Uh, you know, for example, here at the LSE, we've set aside PhD scholarships for women and black students mm -hmm who are, want to do PhDs in disciplines where they're underrepresented. Uh, and, you know, we recently uh, offer advertised what we call pre-docs to try and incentivize uh, scholarships for those who are underrepresented. And we were overwhelmed in just one week, we had 74 applicants for eight slots. So there is a pipeline there and we need to collectively build it. I did a recent event with, uh, with the ECB for younger women economists, and it was so impressive, this next generation that's emerging, working on you know, really nitty gritty monetary policy issues, and they will be the future leaders of the ECB. So I think that's hopeful. And I think we also need to make jobs less greedy so that both men and women can manage their work and their caring responsibilities. And that means flexible working, more, uh, more working through teams so that people can substitute for each other when they have other things come up in their lives and better parental leave and childcare. And I think if we do those things, we'll see a huge improvement in leadership in these disciplines. Mm. But Christian, yeah, what do you think? Okay, I second all of that, but I would probably add a couple of things. One is, we are all women. Oh, <laughs> shock horror. <laughs> By that I mean, in each and every one of each and every one of, uh, of you, of us, there is a sleepy woman, and you can wake up that woman. Okay, what, 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 is, what is she talking about? <laughs> if you take the view that women have special attributes that have to do with empathy, with compassion, with the ability to listen, with the sense that you can put yourself in the shoes of somebody else, then we can all do that. So that's what I mean by, by enable the woman who is sleeping inside you, okay? It cuts both ways. Women should not repress those skills and special qualities. That's okay. And men should develop even further their talent by waking up that woman side that is inside all of you. Okay. I'm not sure that I'm going to make headline with the traitors. <laughs> <laughs> and the second thing I would add to all the practical um, recommendations that you made that are extremely important because there is a, a biological moment in our lives, women, uh, where we need time, we need space, we need attention, and we need time off. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be compensated in career development. Mm -hmm. But I would say that we also need in many, many corners of our institutions, be that in parliament, in the corporate world, in board, in executive committees, and so on and so forth, we need quotas. Now, I used not to agree with my statement, okay? As, as a young, allegedly talented person, I thought, no, 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 I'm going to succeed on my own merits. That is rubbish. Because the step is just too high to climb. And if you do not reach a threshold of enough women in the room, and there is plenty of very, very uh, wise literature on that topic, if you don't reach that threshold, it will continue to be hard, hard, and hard. And people will continue to have that little cynical smile on their face whenever a woman takes the floor. That cynical smile has to disappear, and it will disappear when the threshold is met. So I changed my mind, as I was saying earlier <laughs> on. I followed Keynes' views because I understood that that step would never be climbed if we didn't, do not make an effort. And it's not going to be to the detriment of the quality of our organizations because good women will come along and it will be an improvement for all of us, women and men. So that's what I would add Very to your good. proposal. Very good. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. 
I think we've got time for a few questions. So I will take a few in the room and then I'll try and get some from, uh, from the audience online. Uh, I'm going to start with a woman because that's what we do at the LSE over here. And uh, maybe I'll take the gentleman in the back and then I'll take the woman here. And if you could please introduce yourself uh, before you ask your question. Hello. Um, hi, I'm Pearl Sullivan. I study the master's in gender and development here at the LSE. Um, and you all, thank you so much, first of all, but um, you all have discussed the importance of addressing climate change um, and also uh, the importance of inclusion kind of throughout finance, but multilateral institutions and specifically for what I'm studying, looking at development. So I was wondering if you could speak about the intersection, if you believe there is one of that importance of inclusion, whether that's racial or gender inclusion um, and addressing climate change. Thank you. Okay, I'm gonna take a few questions and then uh, accumulate them. So I believe uh, we had the, there was a gentleman. It's here. There, there we go. And then I'll take the woman right here. Hi, uh, great to hear all of you. Uh, Kaustub Zoshi from Standard Chartered. I think you made a point about the three C's, uh, which was very interesting on how policymakers take a decision. So in that framework, how do you look at the UK's decision, which has been challenged by the EU in the courts? Uh, and do you think there is a massive risk for global common minimum agenda with these self-preservative moves, which increasingly countries and policymakers are taking? And how do you incentivize them away from that, especially the developing markets? Maybe. That's a follow-on, uh, a global leader, and the lawyer's opinion. And then we'll take the woman here in the middle. If you could raise your hand, the mic will come to you. Hi, thank you. I'm a student in political economy of Europe. Um, and this year we had a course about the political economy of finance in Europe. And one of the questions in the exam was... Uh, <laughs> Very classy to get Christine Lagarde to help you with your exam. <laughs> I mean, you were involved in the question. So the question was, um, Janet Yellen, she declared uh, that she, her goal is to help Main Street rather than Wall Street. Uh, and the question was, do you think Christine Lagarde should or would uh, declare such a thing that like, she would help the public rather than the banks? Oh. Thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, so inclusion, Northern Ireland, I think, was that question. Uh, the UK move away from legal agreements and um, Wall Street versus Main Street. <laughs> but I was told that LSE students and participants were tough uh, <laughs> questioners, but I wasn't expecting that much. So. <laughs> You're not disappointing me. Um, you know, the, the, the intersection between inclusion and climate change, I'd, I'd have to really um, do a bit, of, a bit more work, a bit more research on that, because intuitively, it seems to come as an absolute given. But what I would like to uh, do a bit more work on is how by uh, supporting inclusion, favoring it, putting in place the policies that will be helpful for inclusion, uh, be that, as you said, ra racial, uh, gender-wise and, and, or otherwise, how is that conducive to or not uh, to the improvement of the fight against climate change? And honestly, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to brag and to invent something. I, I don't have the answer, but I think it's a, it's a, those are two critically important uh, projects to have and causes to serve, but how they intersect uh, I'd, I'd have to. Do you have views yourself? I'm, I'm, I'd be very interested to hear because if you're focusing on that, you must have done some research. And I'm not. I'm not contributing to your research by saying what I'm saying. Now. <laughs> the that's I a technique, by the way. When you are, uh, uh, that's for those of you. Who <laughs> <laughs> typical technique with journalists. When you don't like their questions, you turn it around and you ask them. But I wouldn't do that. No, I, I'm serious. I definitely am not by any means an expert. I was just wondering because um, in a few of my classes, we discussed kind of how climate change is at least a, kind of the earliest stages are directly affecting the poorest in the world and often women, poor women. And so, and then by the same token, it is often those women who are, you know, coming up with ideas to combat it or taking action in their communities to kind of 
mitigate the effects, mm. um, which is where my question came from. But I, I, I don't I know. The you know what? I want to direct you to one piece of work that was uh, produced actually by the IMF under the uh, direction of Maurice Obsfeld. Maurice was then the chief economist, and he did. Uh, they did a really good uh, piece of research on the actual overlap between the climate change uh, map, uh, where it has the worst effect, uh, the poverty and growing poverty, uh, the uh, arising of um, war conflicts mm -hmm. and uh, terrorism. And it was absolutely amazing to see how there was not correlation because it was not studied in that respect, but complete overlap of those four maps all coming together and pointing to the most vulnerable living in the hottest and most exposed countries, having being at risk of war and, and where terrorism was actually growing uh, nicely. It's, it's, it's a really good piece of work. So I should have thought about that. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. So on the other one, look, I'm not going to address the political question uh, that relates to uh, the United Kingdom. It's not for me to, to, to pass judgment. It's not for me to uh, give you my, my two pennies um, view on that. But I'm a lawyer by background. And I have had the luxury of living throughout my life uh, in countries that respected, in the main, the rule of law. And I have, I have worked with or visited uh, and encountered people who lived in other countries those that do not have the rule of law, who do not value that as a key principle, a foundational uh, for living together. As, as by the way, Minouche demonstrates beautifully in her book, uh, <laughs> What We Owe Each Other, the social new social contract, which I highly recommend to all of you. <laughs> but because of all that, the rule of law is what binds us, what protects us, what keeps us together. And reneging on a rule of law that has been established by mutual agreement without any duress, with proper consideration, is a very big issue and one that we should all be concerned about for the future. I'll leave it there. I, I'm sure you understand what I'm saying here. Um, okay, so when asked that difficult question of, aren't you helping the banks rather than help the public? In a way, as a central banker, I have this um, comfort of always coming back to my mandate. What is the mandate of the European Central Bank? And our mandate is awfully simple. It's not dual like the Fed, for instance. It is price stability, which we have defined in the strategy review, as I mentioned earlier. So I ask myself, to deliver price stability, Am I, or by delivering price stability, which we strive to do and which we will deliver, am I helping the banks or am I helping the public? And I err on the side of we are helping the public, not the banks. Okay? Because price stability, the previsibility of how inflation will behave, is actually of help to the most vulnerable those who are most to suffer from high inflation, historically, whatever you, regime it falls under, are the most vulnerable people. So by that, and by guaranteeing and procuring price stability through our efforts, we are actually helping the people. Having said that, we also have to gain out of having a banking system that is solid, that is well capitalized, that is reliable, where you deposit are safe and guaranteed. And, and you can address that question better than anybody else if you were not conflicted. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but having those stable, solid, well-capitalized banks is also in the interest of our societies. If we had had in 2008, a meltdown of the banking system. We, we came close to it. You, you, you would remember that vividly and you too, Minut. We came close to it. If we had had that situation, it wasn't so much that the bankers would have lost their shirt. Maybe they would have, maybe they wouldn't have. But it is pretty much certain that depositors would have lost their deposits, that savers would have lost their <coughs> savings. And that would have been a far dearer grave catastrophe than what we faced. Not to justify that I'm helping banks, 
You know, when we put in place uh, this targeted long-term refinancing scheme called Teltro, and we put a lot of financing on the table for banks, it wasn't for the pleasure of extending financing. It was to make sure that banks would continue to lend to the economy, to the real economy, as we call it. And that was the condition under which they could have access to pretty attractive uh, lending rates. So primary responsibility under the mandate, price stability to benefit those most exposed and the most vulnerable. And of course, a need to have a, a banking system and a financial system that is solid and stable. Okay, very good. Well, I think that is a very good point to say thank you enormously to Christine and to Jose for this panel, uh, and to thank all of you who are with us and those online for joining us today. I think, um, I think you can basically see that my oration was right, right? <laughs> it was pretty accurate, no? So, uh, so uh, it's been really wonderful to have all of you here. I'll ask the audience to remain in your seats for a couple of minutes while we get off stage, but we will meet you outside uh, for a reception in the foyer uh, where we will all have a chance to chat. Meanwhile, I'd be grateful if you could join me in thanking Christine and Jose for Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.